Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined today by Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. Tim, Heidi, Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Great. It's going great. David, it's going terrifically. What would happen if one day one of you got on here and were like, man, you don't even want to know. Don't ask. What do you think would happen? Then you'd probably ask and then it would be... (laughs) We'd never have a chance. Would you ask? That's a question. Would you say, oh, what's going on? Or would you be like, oh, sorry, and then awkwardly move on? Yeah, know. right. What would you do? <laughs> I, feel like, the, would I you... feel like in the past, what's happened is you just lie and say it's great, and then someone describes yeah. a terrible thing that happened to them. So that's maybe easier. I think though, because the show is typically an hour and a half, <laughs> by the by the time that we're an hour into the show, everyone who listens is like, "Man, Tim was lying when he said he was having a good day." Because just <laughs> listen to him; grumpy. he is well, grumpy. Yeah, but you have to. <laughs> We record this in one sitting, right? So by the time we're done, we're bleary-eyed and we just felt like we just ran a marathon and everything. The people who are listening probably listen... Well, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people probably listen in like 15, 20-minute increments while they're running errands or doing the dishes or whatever. I doubt many people, based on typical podcast statistics and analytics, most people do not listen to it in one sitting. So... Huh. um, So, you know... Maybe maybe they're maybe they won't be maybe they can't tell quite just how bored you are every episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyway, hey, um, speaking of Heidi, you're tra- go ahead. Heidi, you're traveling this week. Yeah, I'm coming out to Seattle, but we're going to miss yeah. each other, which is really yeah. sad. Yep, we're going to a conference this weekend, so it's going to be great. I, I have well, a I'm question. not going to be in Seattle either, so. Oh, that's really I sad. I know you're not, David. I know. It's yeah. it is sad. But if I was there, I, I'd miss you too, Tim. Thank we, you. If you were there, I would take you to the best restaurant. So we have <laughs> top five restaurants in the world. And there is one in Seattle. It's called the Pink Door. Everyone should go there. It's right across from Pike's Market. And they have the best lasagna I've ever, ever, ever had. I Tim. have to go there. Tim. You've got to go ask. there. Yeah, I do have to go there. We all need to go, David. Okay. You would love it. So, is this anyway, like high class? Go. Is this like high class food? Um, it's it's kind of like a trendy, locally sourced place. So it's got it's right on the water. It overlooks the water, and they even it's all freshly caught seafood. And is it, um, is it Italian? You said lasagna. It is Italian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know why we're still talking about this, but okay. Can I just? I know we've got to get to the book. Can I just do a little <laughs> interlude here? I would Speaking of high else. class yes. food, do you do you guys do you guys have weaknesses for sort of like plebeian foods that you know? Is this a diversion into Halloween candy again? No, it's not. No, we it's are not. not. Talking about bitter honey, we have played yeah. that. We're done. <laughs> no, we're going to open a whole new cachet. Okay. Okay. Of jokes for Graham. All right. Well, 
want to hear David's because David is a kind of a fancy foodie. So what's my, your worst my plebeian? Like, yeah, if you like yeah. go to a gas station, David, you're driving to South Carolina from Charlotte and you pull over on the side of the road and you go in and you know that you shouldn't get this, but you, but you get it anyway. What is it? Well, it's funny that Heidi just called me a, what did you, I'm a high class foodie or something. I think I said fancy because oh. alliteration, but high, high class, class is, is just what I was thinking, how yeah. I was thinking of myself. Yeah. Um, I, cause I am, I have terrible eating habits. Um, I just like to pretend that I'm a foodie. Um, I would, I would just take, I would go find every piece of peach ring gummy candy that I could possibly find. Fill my arms with, with gross, (laughs) gross candy. And that's what, I mean, you, we're talking about gas station, right? Yeah, that's right. I don't know. Okay, and here's, garbage, here's a little garbage. Peek. Lots of candy. Well, here's a little peek into the 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 inner life of the secret life of David Kern. He would fill his arms with all of that candy, and then he'd eat half of three pieces, and then leave the rest on the end table. No, wait, hold on a second. Hold on. Well, that's wait, not, really? That's not false. Exactly. No, actually, when I'm if I was driving somewhere, I would eat every little bit of it. Uh, okay. Probably the answer is nerds, but um, nerds. Oh, I love nerds. It's like a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit on the nose. But um, but if I did all that, I would do all that with the anticipation that wherever my destination is or whoever is riding in the car with me would be eating it with me. I do like to share food. That is mine. If I'm a foodie, it's because I like to share it. And whether it's junk food or whatever I'm cooking or whatever, or taking people to restaurants, that's my favorite thing about food is sharing it. Yeah. Oh, this is a sweet moment. It's not really meant to this be. This is not- a sweet moment. <laughs> well, this is such a sweet moment. That was okay, really okay. where I was going with this. What about you, Heidi? <laughs> oh, well, here's here's where all the threads come together. The gas station and the Italian food. So by far, definitely my favorite, just poisonous plebeian food is gasatinos from, you know, those cappuccinos. Oh, those they come out of the machine. Like and they cost like a dollar fifty, and you can. And they're like, so is, good. Forty-eight ounces of coffee. <laughs> you want a? Oh my goodness! It's okay. You want a? You want a forty-eight ounce cappuccino? That's not a cappuccino. Oh, oh no! It's it's ridiculous. This is you, what this is. What did you call it? A gasachino. A gasachino. That is what we call it. Yes. <laughs> Tim, let's call it. Yes. like a fopacino. That's a fopacino. Like that's Ray not Liotta. a gasachino. That's a fopacino. I like that better. What did you just say? Like what? It's like Ray Liotta. You know, like <laughs> what do you mean, like, like Ray Liotta? Like Second tier Al Pacino. He's fopacino. <laughs> yes, actually, that's perfect. I love that. You're not what quite in the Ray Godfather. He's in Goodfellas. He's fopacino. <laughs> Guys, this is the best episode of Close Reads. Okay, what's yours, Tim? <laughs> what about okay? Before we leave, what's the name of the um Andy? Oh, uh, he's Andy in one of like Andy Garcia. Andy Gar- is any isn't Andy Garcia kind of Fopacino? Yeah, definitely, he definitely. Is. He also was in the Godfather Three, so that works out great. That's probably the better one than Ray Liotta. <laughs> you know what? I think we can say that Godfather Three, the entire movie is Fopacino. <laughs> oh. We need to hashtag this. Yeah, that's this a different yeah. that's a different conversation though. Tim, you gotta give us your uh your version uh, of the Pacino. It's the Taquito. It's that kind of crispy, 
corn shell <laughs> with you just made a, a, like fake Mexican, a, like faux Mexican, no! like a faux Japanese food. Everyone who has QTs, like if you have a QT oh, gas yeah. station, this is my wife's in your locale. Right this is my wife. Everybody knows what the taquito is. It's a roll instead of like a taco. It's it's rolled. And it's got that kind of grade D beef inside of it. And it's super spicy. And then they give you, this is the kicker. They give you um, like a, like a ketchup packet, but it's filled with this. Oh, salsa, not salsa. It's a oh, salsa. Falsa. Falsa. <laughs> and I'm telling you, like I could eat those things in like, Oh, I could just like a mow on those things. Do you also like pizza rolls? I do like pizza rolls. Now, I have to say, I don't eat this stuff very often, but every once in a while, right. I will break down. So it's really funny that we're talking about this and what my, what my garbage food would be because I figured out that there are certain foods that are ideal for eating during podcasts, which is something Tim has yet to learn. But... Um, <laughs> oh, well, he has the mute button, so it works out great. Oh, great, yeah. So that's, yeah, well, I mean... Yeah, that, how few, uh, that's probably why he goes silent for long periods of time because he's eating taquitos. Right, I'm eating taquitos. I've heard that rumor before. I've actually heard that rumor that he's eating a lot during podcasts. Well, that's not okay. I'm kind of, but, but I, I know that we need putting, to, we need to get to putting, the book. By the way, pudding is a great is a great podcast. Oh, that's a great There's choice. No Ice cream, pudding, things like that. Ice cream does not. Oh, good. I mean, I'm. I'm I didn't eat lunch, I so I'm this. starving. Well, can I, can I say something little... about um, not p- puddings or taquitos or fopuccinos? You going to defend yourself now or something? Yes, I do. I feel like this <laughs> need to defend myself, even though no one is attacking the guilty, <laughs> the guilty flea when no one pursues. <laughs> No, um, see, this is still. This may not be directly on topic, but it's still on topic of power and the glory. I feel like. Yeah. We'll get it back. Okay, I want to hear that transition, David. One of the things I'm, I, I was very thankful, I was feeling very thankful last week because the Joe Coast readers got me this picnic basket full of goodies for my belated birthday, and it was really nice. And it included a lot of notes from listeners, just these really warm, super kind, encouraging notes. But one of the things that at least a couple of people said was, I wish that you talked more. And I know that David has said, maybe even on the air, like, hey, Tim, if you want to like talk a little bit more, that'd be great. And you know what's funny? When I walk away from our podcast, I'm like, well, you ran your mouth the whole time again. There you went again, just running your mouth, Tim. (laughs) Never shut up. You say it like a cowboy to yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I say it like I say like a cowboy. I kind of push my hat back. I push the hat rim back. I kind of lean back and I just say, well, wipes his brow with his bandana. Right. right. Yeah. And then at the end of it, he just spurs his horse and rides off into the sunset. Just rides (laughs) off into the sunset. Which it might be sunset by the time we're done with all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Not Bianco. Just like, he's not even listening. And he just had a heart. Right. Before we, before we get to the actual book, I do need to say a quick word from our friends over at Belmont Abbey college, which is a Catholic Benedictine college uh, near here um, in Concord. It's in Charlotte. And they've just launched a new honors college. This distinctive program prepares students for an exceptional career through flexible, robust, great books education. The curriculum focuses on the great conversation among the most influential ancient Christian and modern authors. 
and culminates in a unique senior year dedicated to considering various crises in the West. Students can choose four years of study committed exclusively to the grade books or elect a traditional major while also taking a substantive, substantive, what do we decide on that? Great books core. Honor students will study abroad in Ireland or Italy and foster lasting friendships centered around the shared pursuit of truth. Substantive, I think, was what we decided. Substantive, a, yes. A scholarship covering nearly half of the college's tuition is included. Speaking of substantive, for more information, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash greatbooks. Again, that's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash greatbooks. A life well lived awaits. My cousin Alex, who works with us here, uh, reminded me yesterday that she is graduating in like seven weeks from Belmont Abbey College. So what? congrats to her. She's uh, she's almost done. And she's amazing. And <clears throat> I mean, that's partly just her. And also she's getting a good education. Yeah. So check out Belmont Abbey. Um, the head of their honors college um, is actually going to be speaking at the conference next summer. And he's a, he's oh, nice. a great, great speaker. So we're excited about that. Okay. Let's talk about... The Power and the Glory, chapters two and three, if anybody is still listening, we thank you for still being here. We suspect that most of you just skipped ahead. Um, so, Heidi, you, you told me on Slack that you believe that chapters two and three of this book are some of the greatest chapters of any novel ever written. And you mentioned that Graham Greene claimed that that chapter three was the best thing he ever wrote. Huh. So those are two interesting, uh, you know, ways of kind of framing our discussion. And I certainly want to hear from you first why you think that these are two of the greatest chapters of any novel. And that'll, I'm sure that'll carry us into some very specific things. But what, but I guess more personally, what does this section mean to you? Well, personally. Um, yes, I... I did tell you that on Slack and I stand by it. These two chapters are absolutely magnificent. I remember uh, Graham counting down to his favorite part in Crossing to Safety, the last book we read. And I've been doing that until we get to these chapters. Uh, I think these are just absolutely magnificent in almost every way. So, but personally, that's a harder question to answer. I think because... Well, but what, how, why have they lingered for you? Um, I think specifically with the chapter three, with the conversations that the priest has in prison, and, and I'm sure we'll get to this, how, how much that corresponds with the, the scene in Gethsemane for Christ during Holy Week. This is his Gethsemane, this temptation, this question of can this cup pass from me mm. and, then, and encountering this pious woman, that particular conversation is very meaningful to me. Um, I, uh, the idea of the connection between suffering and beauty and then that all important line that I'm sure everybody who read caught that hate is just a failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. That is that particular line. It's one of those, I, I wish I could get it tattooed on my forehead. Like that, that idea that, Hey, you, you, you know, you, you can, right? I like could. That's a thing that can happen. Right. And I can have Gastinos every day if I want them. So, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that suffering and beauty and compassion are so deeply entwined and that it is our imagination must be redeemed in order to truly love. 
that is very meaningful to me personally. And that, that message I think comes out so much in this, that particular section, which Graham Greene was very attached to, as I mentioned to you, he did say, this was the best thing I've ever written. Mm-hmm. Tim, one thing I was thinking about as I was reading that passage <clears throat> is how, is the way he seems to, um, the whiskey priest seems to sort of, I don't know how to put it. He seems to come into some wisdom um, oh, yeah. during those conversations in a way that maybe has not been present or that, or maybe in a way that he's not been willing to express um, in, in, throughout the book thus far. How do you think, or why do you think that happens? I mean, yeah. where, where does he get that wisdom from? Where does he get the wisdom um, to say something like, hate is just a failure of imagination? And And then I'll let you piggyback on that and answer, you know, why you think that these Graham Graham Greene might've thought these chapters were so good or respond to what Heidi was saying. I, I I wonder if part of the reason that this wisdom is now coming from him is that he feels like he's been on the run throughout the book, but now um, he just saw the mestizo arrested he anticipates that um, he is going to be found out as a priest. He's going to be, you know, have a kangaroo trial and he's going to be shot. And so there's no escaping it now. And I think the, the, the allusion to the finality of it. Yeah. It's just, it's Christ in Gethsemane. Um, it's all going to happen tomorrow and there's no getting, I mean, he just feels that it's all going to happen tomorrow and he can't run away from it anymore. I wonder, well, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I think part of the reason I wonder if Graham Greene saw this as a highlight of his own writing is because it's this wonderful marriage in these two chapters of the highest forms of literature combined with, especially in chapter two, uh, how do I say it? It's just a great kind of crackling yarn. It's just the plot is racing forward and you can like mm-hmm. feel the plot is not necessarily racing forward because he's just in one place or two places. These were definitely page turner pages. Yeah. They're page turners. Yeah. That the other, the previous, yeah, I don't know, 120 pages maybe weren't. I guess, again, depending on the volume that you're using. Yeah. I I am a big fan of Bruce Springsteen. We've Mm -hmm. talked about this, Mm -hmm. David. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I like Bruce Springsteen so much is because at its best, he's marrying just really, really, um, the music just makes you want to dance. It's got all these great hooks in the music. You just want to pay attention and the choruses are lovely and you can sing along. But if you listen to the words, you're like, man, this is re- this is really thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And and I see this same sort of thing happening with, with Graham Greene. He's marrying kind of the pop art of a page turner with this more, this really sophisticated literary ability. Mm. Springsteen's. We could we could talk. Who's the Fo Springsteen? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, the, the world is littered with them, <laughs> all of them. Um, yeah, right. 
what do you what do you make of the that chapter three coming after that uh, after chapter two though i was thinking about that so yeah. we, chapter two is the sort of i don't know drunken certainly more desperate well it's desperate in a different way right like i guess it's, maybe it's building up to chapter three but there is certainly a sense of um i was thinking the word debauchery don't know if that's the right word uh-huh. um probably not but there's this you know this, this deep fallenness in the chapter. And then in chapter three, his, his spirits, the way he is interacting with people, the, his mood, his, his ability to function has changed. And what, where, where does that happen? You know, hmm. what's the transition point? Hmm. I'll, t- I'll take a crack at that. So I see these as sister chapters. Uh, one cannot exist without the other. Structurally, there's a lot of formal things that Graham Greene is doing in here that I'm sure our readers and and you two have picked up on. For example, until then, until this point in the novel, the priest has been either mostly alone or in conversations one-on-one. Uh, and here we have him in groups. Uh, in the in chapter two, we have him in a group with powerful people. In chapter three, we have him in a group with powerless people. So he's going hmm. uh, on polar sides of the social ladder in uh, in these two chapters. Yeah. Um, also, in chapter to go along with that, there's these contrasts. And, you know, Graham Greene, we've been talking a lot about the paradoxes that he's been doing. There's a couple of them, even in some imagery here. In chapter two, there's the dynamo, which is a generator, and it's rhythmically going, like this idea of this artificial power, right? It's, it, you can hear it in the background. It's mentioned several times, uh, this rhythmic motion of artificiality that's mm. permeating the city. Whereas in the prison scene... You have this, the artificial, uh, not artificial, excuse me, the rhythmic motion of uh, this lovemaking that's going on in the background. Um, And this, he calls it pleasure, right? Which is the opposite of that, this primal animal motion energy that is going through with these powerless people versus the artificial energy that is motivating these powerful people. So there's this formal things. I think artificial is an appropriate word in both cases though. I think you're exactly right. Yes. And again, that's that paradox. Um, And you also asked David something I think, which is really important, which is what's the connection between the two, which comes down to alcohol, I would say is a huge part of that. Because of course, the priest wants wine so that he can perform the sacrament. And he it's he watches these people these powerful people just drink it in front of him and swindle him intentionally out of his money and steal not only the wine that he bought but his ability to perform the sacrament for the poor people um that he is actually he's he's given everything he has in order to perform the sacrament and now that's been taken from him and there's obvious the symbolism of that And then that takes him into the Gethsemane experience. And so I think my whole theory about this chapter is that it's an inversion of the Last Supper. I was just going to ask you that. And then that leads then to the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's this constant sense of decay and distortion. We talked a lot about that even on Facebook this week, the decay motif. Um, and, And I think to the point that Tim made that so, Tim, this was an excellent point, that it is a page turner. Uh, But you also said there's actually not that much happening. Right. But I think that subconsciously we're picking up on that. We're sensing all that, even if we don't notice it right off the bat, we can see that 
actually what's accelerating really quickly for the priest is the destruction of his ability to perform the sacraments. And he, and it's rushing towards some kind of death for him. And he thinks it's a literal death at this point. Interesting that at the, I mean, you would think that maybe chapter four then is going to lead to some sort of uh, crucifixion type scene, but, mm-hmm. and that may, that may yet happen. We're not going to give anything away, but at the end of it, he seems to be going free. So the, it does seem to right. have passed from him. And they, and the, interestingly, unlike Christ, he never, well, I don't, maybe he does. I, maybe I shouldn't say this so definitively, but I don't recall him actually praying that it would be taken from him. He, in a way he sort no. of despairs into, uh, you know, um, acceptance his despair mm-hmm. turns into acceptance. And that once he, once that acceptance comes along, he seems that's when he seems to be able to um, be there for other people. Once he accepts his fate, it, he's no longer despairing. And that's when it, he's, he is enabled to, to love the people that are around him. Yeah. Instead of seeing them as animals, he sees them in their most animal state. He sees them as people. And I think that, you know, there's the, <clears throat> there's the bucket, you know, the bucket that he then has to empty later. Yes. There's the animal. Well, I I think you you uh, graciously called it lovemaking. Um, <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, then there's the um, you know, there's the old man who can barely, you know, he doesn't seem to know what's going on. He can't even hold himself up. And there's all this all this going on around him. And it reminded me of some of the scenes in the jungle uh, for some reason that called to mind those scenes. And so even in the midst of all that, where people are at their lowest state is some suddenly in some way able to love them as human beings and see them as people. And then in the morning when he wakes up, he sees the kid, right? Yes. And the one person, that's the one person who seems to be all there is the Mm -hmm. child. And I'm not, I, we got to talk about that at some point. I don't, let's put a pin on that for now, but do you, do you, um, you said it's an inversion of the Gethsemane. So I was just going to ask that same thing. I wanted you to, I, I never even thought about that, Heidi. I want to hear you expand upon that. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that the last supper scene is more of the inversion than the Gethsemane scene. So in chapter two, okay. when he is trying to buy wine and then they steal it from him, right? This is, the opposite of what happens when Christ gives wine to his uh, disciples and then charges them to go out and make disciples and you know, and all of that. Um, so that is and in, institutes the sacrament, but he's trying to institute a sacrament. He's trying to perform a sacrament, yeah. to, in, but he, instead the supper is just this grotesque caricature in which he ends up swindled with nothing. He has no money now. He has no wine. Right. And so I think that's the inversion. But then when he's arrested for having brandy, uh, not for being a priest, right? He's not, he can't be a martyr. He's not, he hasn't been caught. They just think he's a beggar. Um, Then I think this, this whole scene of him being in the darkness, surrounded by disembodied voices whom he can't see. And, and he tells them who he is. I just mm-hmm. I love that. And I want to hear y'all's thoughts on that, why he did that. And, um, but this is, to your point, David, there is a marked change in him from this kind of inner torment to a kind of ownership of his sacramental office here. 
which I think that isn't an inversion, but an actual one-to-one correlative to Christ. Let this cut pass for me, but not my will, but mine be done. It strikes me that he does that immediately following Jose, not betraying him, but not letting him in. So the, yes. the other priest who was doing the opposite of what he ultimately is going to do in chapter three, in terms of, um, how did you just put it that he is fulfilling his, his sacramental co- office? Sacramental office, Yeah. So you have father, uh, Jose, Pedro, mm-hmm. was that? Padre Jose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it Jose? Yeah. I'm getting all the names. <clears throat> I know. There's... Also when I have to remember them and say them, you know, that's with, too much to worry people. about. You yeah. don't even. You yeah. can remember and speak at the same. To remember time. and say things at the um, same time. That is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the, immediately after he goes to him to Jose for help, Jose turns him away. He he casts him out. Immediately after that, he gets caught and then turns and does the opposite to all these people of what Jose does. Jose yeah. won't even admit his past enough to let somebody into his home who he doesn't even, you know, who, who they think who they're chasing because of alcohol, not because he's a priest. And then in the lion's den, so to speak, the whiskey priest does the opposite of that. Um, right. And I, I'm still, I'm still really interested in where this change is for him because even there's even this tonal change in the way green's writing. Yes. Um, even like a mood change, the rhythms kind of change in chapter three from chapter two to chapter three. And that like, it's almost like some of that murkiness is lifted. Um, and I don't know if it's because there's a simplicity to it and it's kind of lingers in one place. Um, but, but where does this transition come from? Like, why is he suddenly able to, to fulfill that calling that, that Heidi's talking about there? Tim, what do you think about that? I mean, is there, is there something in the story? Is there a moment that seems to give us a clue? I don't see it either. I was, I mean, it wasn't like I was confused by it when it happened. It, 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 it was not confusing, but it was surprising. I guess that's the best way of saying it. That he um, would tell them who he is. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what was happening internally that made him say, this is the moment or these, these are the people other than these are the prisoners. These are like, you know, the people that Christ came to set free were the prisoners, the ones that nobody cares about. Um, so I, I don't know. I and mean, part of me wants to talk about just sort of structurally why it makes perfect sense within the book, but I think it's too early to talk about that. I, I want to, I, I think we'd, it'd be nice to come back to that. Hmm. I want to know what, if Heidi has a reason that David and I are struggling to come up with about why this is the moment, why he reveals himself to the prisoners. Well, I'm wondering if, okay, so I have the Penguin Classics version on page 118. That's That's where I'm looking right now. So, and this, I've never thought of this before until today. And I kind of vaguely got an idea of it when I was reading for the podcast. And then David, with what you just said about Padre Jose, that clicked in my mind. So tell me what y'all think about this. Um, what if it's this moment in the middle of page 118, um, when he drops the paper? So remember this paper is, this is his last link to being able to prove he's a priest. You remember that he took it from, Mm. 
I can't, he, he's been saving it and hoarding it for all these years. And he's had to let all of these things go, right? His book, his, his breviary that he left behind with Mr. Tench um, and in the briefcase, and then he didn't get any wine and he had buried the wine in it. He got found and then a man got shot for it. And, and, and so all of these links that he's had to his complacent, self-righteous past, the old ways. Um, then the last thing he has is this piece of paper, which I can't even remember what's on it. Is it his ordination papers? I, that sounds right. I can't remember either, though. Um, but anyway, it's important. And Padre Jose tries to spit at him, which, again, that's always important in this book. Spit. Um, and... And then um, he let his fist open and a voice said, that's him, right? This is Judah. This is the Gethsemane scenes beginning. Somebody is pointing him out. That's him. And it was the young red shirt. He let his fist open and dropped by Padre Jose's wall, a little ball of paper. It was like the final surrender of a whole past. Hmm. He knew it was the beginning of the end after hmm. all these years. And then he begins to repent. He began to say silently an act of contrition while they picked the brandy bottle out of his pocket, but he couldn't give his mind to it. That was the fallacy of the deathbed repentance. Penitence was the fruit of long training and discipline. Fear wasn't enough. So even in this moment, he's berating himself, but he knows that this is an act of contrition here. Something has yeah. just happened and something new is about to happen. Something has died or ended. Something new is about to begin. So I've never thought of this before, but I'm, I'm liking this. What do you guys think? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Back and up go ahead, David. No, go Deb. Go. Well, it's it structurally. Um, that prefaces what I am observing with the structure. We've talked on this podcast a lot about how there's oftentimes in well-constructed books, a middle point where, mm -hmm the main character goes from something it's often something like trying to understand to acting upon the conviction of one's understanding. Um, and it even the midpoint shows up in the synoptic gospels. The moment in the synoptic gospels is the apostles, Jesus' disciples. They don't know exactly who he is. Tim, and you're Jesus, oh, really? Yeah, keep going. And then Jesus presses them. And the middle point of the synoptic gospels is Peter's confession, the first confession, you know, um, of the church. Uh, you are the Messiah. And that just matches up really neatly with what is happening with the priest. So there are, let's do some quick math. This is page 118, right? Right, right. I did. I just did the math a second ago. <laughs> and the the book, the Penguin Classic, begins on page seven. So if you take one hundred eighteen and subtract seven from it, what is that, Tim? Uh, one hundred eleven. <laughs> and if you go, good job. Book, you nailed it. <laughs> that means so there's one hundred eleven pages there, right? The book ends on page two hundred twenty-two. Huh. See, that's yeah. So this is the That's 111th page of 222. Now that could be a function of the, the edition, but either way, it's pretty much right in the middle. How, I mean, right. you, you have to lay it out really weirdly to, to not for it to not be in the middle somewhere. I was doing the math and I've got a different 
pagination penguin classics, but it is almost exactly, I think it's two pages off from the direct middle in mine. Right. The point though is really is clear. Yes. Right. He, he, he's, you know, I mean, there's things like they, they, I was wondering if maybe they did it on purpose because the way they lay out the chapters and stuff in this book, is it's kind of, you know, there's, they're not separate pages and things like that. So sometimes uh-huh. not, that can be, there can be a reason. Maybe they're trying to get it to right in the middle. I don't know. But if you back up a few lines from where you started right before that all happens, I think there's some interesting lines that are worth considering because he's talking to Jose and Jose says, I'll shout if you don't go. And then we get this, it's this mini moment of confession. Well, sort of, mm-hmm. he tried to remember some cause of hatred. There were voices in the street, arguments, a knocking. Were they searching the houses? He said, if I ever offended you, Jose, forgive me. I was conceited, proud, overbearing, a bad priest. I always knew in my heart you were the better man. So he's saying this to a person who has abdicated his role, essentially, right? Um, mm-hmm. saying, I, he's admitting I was conceited and proud and overbearing. I was a bad priest. You, priest, you were better. Then Jose says, I think this is important. Go, mm-hmm. Jose screeches at him and screeches is a very animal type. Yes. That's the, the way he, um, Graham Greene makes, he animalizes, what's the opposite of personifying? He animalizes characters is interesting. He says, go, I don't want martyrs here. I don't belong anymore. Leave me alone. I'm all right as I am. Why does he say that? He's not saying, he's not saying it's got nothing to do with the priest, the whiskey priest. He's saying, I'm all right as I am. I need you to go. It's like the, right. it's like a, the opposite, the total opposite of what the whiskey priest has just admitted. Right. He's completely lax in self-awareness. I mean, we uh-huh. know that he's not all right as I am. And in this moment um, for the whiskey priest, that self-awareness is becoming more and more clear. It seems like that's been part of the journey of the first half of this book. Then it says he tried to gather up his venom. There's a snake, the snake yes. idea again, again, coming in, coming into focus into spittle. And he shot it feebly at the other's face. So he's got the venom, but it's ineffective, right? It doesn't have a mm-hmm. thing. It didn't even reach, but fell impotently through the air. Then he says, go and die quickly. That's your job. Hmm. And slammed the door too. The door of the patio came suddenly open and the police were there. So the way, like, Tim, you'd like this because think about the way that you'd stage this if you were filming it or I was on a stage, right? So he's facing one direction and the guy says, go and die. That's your job. Do it quickly, get it over with, but that is your job. And he slams the door. Behind him, another door opens. And he's taken out out that door. And it's when he gets taken out that door that the stuff that Heidi's talking about happens and the rest of the book seems to emerge. Yeah, right. Wow. Nice observation. You could stage that in a film or or especially on stage where you can sort of, you see, you could stage it on two different ends of a, you know, I don't know how exactly you do it, the mechanics of it, but visually you can make that really arresting, I think, in a way that captures what was going on here. And so I love that right in the, it's right in the middle of the book that he's, he state, he's creating this scene where opening and shutting two different doors, one in front of him and one behind him. It seems like the one that's shut in front of him is the first half of the book. And the one that opens behind him is the second half of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's that's, I never saw that. Makes, that's great. What, what Heidi's talking about. And they whisk him off. And then on the other side, he's whisked, is whisked off like a guardian spirit from the disastrous human struggle. Yes, by the his wife, right? Yeah. That's the the enormous shape in a white nightshirt engulfed mm. him. 
And then, and then that paragraph you just read, right? He yes. knew it was the beginning of the end. The beginning, exactly. What a great line, yes. right? Like if this is the beginning of the second half of the book, if it's the beginning of the end of the book, I mean, he's just telling us right there, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Well, in this Padre Jose moment, isn't that the go and die quickly? That's your job. And how what the priests, there's this connection between Padre Jose and the whiskey priest that they they understand something about each other mm. and how padre jose is so full of shame right how else would he say i'm all right as i am other than if he felt as though he was being condemned yeah right? that that sense of to see another priest and to that goes to so many conversations that have gone on on Facebook about the ontology of the priesthood, that when you are a priest, that is now who you are. You cannot unpriest hmm. yourself. So he will always be it's irrevocable living that. To use it the is. word that this section uses. Yes, yes. And so there's a great, great sadness and pathos in Padre Jose's rejection of his priesthood. And yeah. So yeah. anyway, that always just gets me. One thing, another thing that I really like is that, so the first, if we're going to buy into this argument that we're making here, that that this is kind of one, the first half, this section of the book begins, ends, and then the second section starts. It's ending with a confession by the whiskey priest. And then the second one begins, it says he began to, he, he knew it was the beginning of the end after all these years. He began to silently, to say silently an act of contrition. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that kind of almost there's like a mini chiasm there. Yep. Community chiastic uh, structure there. Yes. There is. And there's another paradox in that, right? In the priest dropping his last proof that he's a priest, right? In that moment, he is taking huh, up yeah. the actual mantle of priesthood, owning it in a completely new and potentially glorified way. You know, it's it's interesting because I bet in some sense he kept that piece of paper for so long because it proved to himself that he was a priest still, right. that it was still there, even though he could never really give voice to it. And you hear him constantly trying to like avoid actually saying it in the first half. But then in the second half, when that paper is no longer in his possession anymore in, these, in this chapter three, he's finally able to actually say it. He can no longer rely yes. on the paper to prove it. No, it, he doesn't have the proof anymore. The only proof is his expression of it and his like, and, and the way that he lives it out. He can't, he's not a priest because he has a piece of paper. He's a priest because he fulfills the calling of a priest and because it's an irrevocable thing. Yes, I completely agree. And then one last thing um, is in chapter two, is the issue of, again, alcohol. Over and over again, they call it spirits, which I find very, very compelling. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's carrying spirits and then he's caught for having spirits and then he throws away the spirits. And like this, this idea of um, the fallen nature of spirits versus the redeemed nature of spirits. I think there's a lot of symbolism in that terminology in this chapter as well. Hmm. Let's jump hey, over. David, to you three. used a phrase yeah. a yep. second ago, a word a second ago that I don't know that we've used maybe, but just once on the air, chiasm. 
or a chiastic mm-hmm. structure. Chiasm. It might just be nice so that people don't have to look it up online. Go for it. You, it's, you could probably, you, um, I think it originates in Hebrew poetry and, and yes, it's it um, structural form at itself. Uh, so typical. You're breaking up a little bit. I could tackle this while we're waiting for him to come back on if we want to do that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I, um, I think I, I sent you this on Slack a couple weeks ago, David, that I spent like two and a half hours creating a chiastic structure of the power and the glory. <laughs> um, but a chiasm is like Tim said, a, um, it comes from Hebrew poetry and it's best expressed in example. It's actually very hard to do it verbally, uh, without being able to see it, but I'll try my best. So what it means, it's, if you imagine in your head words, kind of like a wave that go up and then peak and then recede. So, uh, Shakespeare has a very famous chiasm in Macbeth, uh, fair is foul and foul is fair. So fair is if you say fair is A and foul is B, it goes A, B, and then B, A. Fair is foul, foul is fair. A, B, B, A. That's a chiasm. So again, it's or like a wave or a mountain or something in which a structure builds towards a center point and then recedes following that same pattern. And uh, people use it a lot. Authors use it a lot. And... Um, Graham Green, just for symmetry's sake, Shakespeare uses it all the time. Yeah, symmetry. Uh, symmetry Graham, is the word I was going to mention. Yes. So uh, that I, I do know that that's confusing, but it is much easier to explain if you can see it visually. It's actually really simple when you see it, but that's yep. the best I can do to explain it. Verbally. The most famous examples, I think, would be the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then in the yes. in the uh, like I think the the um, the flood narrative is that I think that's chiastic. Uh huh. It is chiastic, um, yes. So you'll find, you know, if, and if you Google it, you'll see there's people who draw diagrams and shapes and all that kind of stuff. But it, um, the 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 idea that there's like a center point that then ripples back out um, in a in a way that mirrors the the other half of the center point is, I guess, the important part. Tim, you're back. I'm back. I was going to say that was a great, that was a better explanation. Of well, what you're not really back, actually. <laughs> You're faux back. Oh no! Is it? <laughs> but really, try. Um, I think that you can see chaotic structure in some of the Psalms, which mm-hmm. would would hurt. We lost him. Yeah, we Tim, we lost you. But I'm confident that whatever he was saying was genius. I'm sure it was. I'm sad to miss it. <laughs> um, so Heidi, you're saying then that you have some ideas about how this book is actually chiastic beyond just these pages here. Right. Well, and whenever you see journeys in books, look for chiasms or chiasms. Um, you can look for them because it's it's a pretty common structure when you're with people are traveling. They go somewhere and then they come back or whatever. So in this particular book, you have the wandering of the priest. Uh, and just thematically, there's a bit of a of of a chiasm here when you have him wandering kind of aimlessly at the beginning of the novel and the first half of the novel, just trying to get away, but he's got all this torment. And then we'll see then if that makes any kind of shift at this point. 
um, into something more purposeful or maybe not. Um, so can a chiasm so, be an, an, an inversion or a fulfillment of something in the first half? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What do you have in mind? Well, I was just thinking like the flood narrative, right? So if yes. maybe the wandering in the first half is happening, this book is happening, um, but then it's a fulfillment or, uh, in the second half, we get a fulfillment of that or a, or an inversion of that where the wandering aimlessly becomes wandering towards something. So yes. like with the flood narrative, it ends, it starts with Noah and his sons. And then at the end, it ends with Noah and his sons again. Right. So, you know, I think, in fact, if you just Google Wikipedia, I'm going to do that right now. If you, or I mean, if you um, Wikipedia chiasm, it should. It yep, should it goes to chiasmus, which is the same thing. So if you go to Wikipedia, it'll it'll take you right. It is spelled C H I A S M. And there's uh, even a page on chiastic structure, and you can they have some diagrams on there if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, are you back? I'm back with deepest apologies. Hey, it's working now. Hey I've changed oh, my laptop. It's nice to hear your voice. Yeah. I got I got done with the phone. I just went to my laptop. Okay. Did you want to add anything to the chiasm portion of things before we jump to something else? No, because all of the like incredibly insightful things that I said happened just coincidentally when my uh, internet was cracking up. <laughs> Well, you can you can say it again if you want. No, 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 no. I'm I'm just teasing. I didn't really have anything more profound than what I heard you guys say. Well, let's jump over to chapter three then, because I want to talk about this conversation before we go between the pious woman and the Wacy priest, because I think it touches on some of the things that happened at the end of chapter two there, and we don't have a ton of time left. Um, there's the for me, it's on one twenty six. Um, there's the bit where the guy in the cell says, there it is there. It's, as I say, believing in God makes cowards. The voice was triumphant as if it had proved something. Can, um, can we, let's do a little, uh, mini, uh, table read of this scene and Heidi, can you be the woman and Timmy be the whiskey priest and all of the narration stuff? Uh, yes. Yes. Where are we starting? Let's start. Um, let's just start with, um, the woman said suddenly, do you guys see that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. So, well, I'll read the little narrative spot before that. Tim, do you see it? No. So for us, it's on one, the bottom of 126. Um, it, the next line is the priest giggled. For me, it's so it says, his feet were giving him great pain. He had cramp in the soles. But he got it. No got pressure. It. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Little but pun he, there, by the way. <laughs> yep. But he, could bring, <laughs> but he could bring no pressure on the muscles to relieve them. It was not yet midnight. The hours of darkness stretched ahead interminably. The woman said suddenly, Think, we have a martyr here. The priest giggled. He couldn't stop himself. He said, I don't think martyrs are like this. He became suddenly serious, remembering Maria's words. It wouldn't be a good thing to bring mockery on the church. Martyrs are holy men. It is wrong to think that just because one dies. No, I tell you, I am in a state of mortal sin. I have done things I couldn't talk to you about. I could only whisper them in the confessional. Everybody, when he spoke, listened attentively to him as if he were addressing them in church, which is the first time that seems to have happened. He wondered where the inevitable Judas was sitting now, but he wasn't aware of Judas as he had been in the forest hut. He was moved by an irrational affection for the inhabitants of this prison. A phrase came to him. God so loved the world. He said, My children, you must never think the holy martyrs are like me. You have a name for me. 
oh, I've heard you use it before now. I am a whiskey priest. I'm here now because they found this bottle of brandy in my pocket. He tried to move his feet from under him. The cramp had passed. That's got to be, that's got to be something, right? Now they were lifeless, all feeling gone. Oh, well, let him stay. He wouldn't have to use them often again. The old man was muttering and the priest's thoughts went back to Brigida. The knowledge of the world lay in her like the dark, explicable spot in an x-ray photograph. He longed with a breath, breathless feeling in the breast to save her, but he knew the surgeon's decision. The ill was incurable. The woman's voice said pleadingly, A little drink, father. It's not so important. Hey, Heidi, why don't you just read for a minute? Because it looks like I, there's less back and forth than I was remem- remembering. So just right. go ahead. Well, there's, there's another back and forth later. Um, he wondered why she was here, probably for having a holy picture in her house. She had the tiresome, intense note of a pious woman. They were extraordinarily foolish over pictures. Why not burn them? One didn't need a picture, he said sternly. Oh, I am not only a drunkard. He had always been worried by the fate of pious women. As much as politicians, they fed on illusion. He was frightened for them. They came to death so often in a state of invincible complacency, full of uncharity. It was one's duty, if one could, to rob them of their sentimental notions of what was good. He said in hard accents. I have a child. What a worthy woman she was. Her voice pleaded in the darkness. He couldn't catch what she said, but it was something about the good thief. And he said, My child, the thief repented. I haven't repented. He remembered her coming into the hut, the dark, malicious, knowing look with the sunlight at her back. He said, I don't know how to repent. That was true. He had lost the faculty. He couldn't say to himself that he wished his sin had never existed because the sin seemed to him now so unimportant and he loved the fruit of it. He needed a confessor to draw his mind slowly down the drab passages which led to grief and repentance. Should I keep going? Mm -hmm. The woman was silent now. He wondered whether, after all, he had been too harsh with her. If it helped her faith to believe that he was a martyr. But he rejected the idea. One was pledged to truth. He shifted an inch or two on his hands and said, What time does it get light? Four, five. How can we tell, Father? We haven't clocks. Have you been here long? Three weeks. Are you kept here all day? Oh, no, they let us clean. They let us out to clean the yard. He thought that is when I shall be discovered unless it's earlier for surely one of these people will betray me first. A long train of thought began, which led him to announce after a while. They're offering a reward for me. 500, 600 pesos. I'm not sure. Then he was silent again. He couldn't urge any man to inform against him. That would be tempting him to sin. But at the same time, if there was an informer here, there was no reason why the wretched creature should be bilked of his reward. To commit so ugly a sin, it might count as murder. And to have no compensation in this world, he thought it wouldn't be fair. Nobody here wants their blood money. Again, he was touched by an extraordinary affection. He was just one criminal among a herd of criminals. He had a sense of companionship, which he had never experienced in the old days when pious people came kissing his black cotton glove. We'll stop there. Okay. It's just so, so good. 
so let's compare this a bit with the converse the stuff we were just talking about there um if if it's true that we've got some some kind of a chiasm here and these pages are mirroring the pages that just occurred and it's going to flesh out in that way how does that how is that happening here in these in these pages compared to the the convert the stuff that we just read about his post you know the scene where it seems like he, there's a turning of some kind hmm. so there should be something before the turn that um like is kind of the inverse picture of what we've just seen here that's what you're suggesting right david um I don't know if I put it so precisely, but there should, I mean, if it's mirroring, I mean, what are we, what are, I, mean, I guess the question is, let's just start by looking at how is it similar well, thematically or in terms of the actions of the priest or, or maybe it's, is there some, some kind of, are his actions, are they markedly different here in this scene? And in what way are they so uh, following the moment of transformation that it seems to come in the middle of the book? Well, one of the obvious ones is the mestizo, right? He is, he's full of anger and hatred of the mestizo, but he, you know, we talked last week about his nobility, whether or not he was noble, great question. Um, and because he did the right thing, even though he didn't feel it, but here we have, uh, um, a, an inner sense of peace, even though he's in the presence of people, he fully expects to betray him and he wouldn't tell the mestizo he was a priest. And he does tell these people yeah. he's a priest. In fact, so people he feared is, before. Yes. Sorry, I thought, sorry. Yes, it, yes. It, no, I'm done. Yep. People he feared before, he has an extraordinary affection for now. Mm-hmm. What yes. does the, Tim, do you remember what the, um, this is going to sound like I'm talking to a student. <laughs> do you remember what the uh, Jose calls him or says he doesn't want? Oh, I have to go back. We just read it, didn't we? No, I don't. Uh, I don't want martyrs here. Yeah, I don't want martyrs here. And then what does she say in this scene? The woman. The woman says suddenly, think. Think. We we have a martyr here. Yeah. Yeah. And the priest then giggles. He couldn't stop himself. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I don't think this is what martyrs are like. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and we have him giving a sermon from the heart, whereas in Concepcion, he gave a sermon out of obligation that kind of called back his sermons from the pious days. Um, of course we have Maria and then this woman, he gave into the sin of Maria, but he, he, he has a genuine love for this pious woman. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, of opportunities to redeem here what he has broken in the first half of the book. It really does seem and I think you guys mentioned this when I was cracking up that the job of the priesthood has ceased to be a job for him. And we've, we've talked about it like kind of ontologically, the priesthood is not, it's deeper than just a job. It's like something like an ontological calling. And it's funny that when Jose says that it's his job, die quickly, it's his job. It's, it's around the moment where the whiskey priest ceases to think of the priesthood as merely a job. And he seems to hmm. um, have yeah. been transformed. Yeah. He's, he's doing this not just out of duty and willpower, but out of some sort of earnest virtue that flows from his understanding of the gospel, his belief in hmm. 
in Christ and the transformative um, nature of belief of belief, I should say, and also in the, in the sacraments. Hmm. Right. Yep. I think that's true. It's interesting that, that green here even calls to mind the idea of the church though. So when they're in this prison, this, this terrible animal setting, um, and it says that they listen to him attentively to him as if he were addressing them in a church. So green is this certainly a suggestive line, if nothing else. What do you make of that line? Um, that I I see it as a redemption of how he has previously seen the church. Yeah. So in the past, the church has been a place where people have come to him as a spiritual authority. And uh, here he is among, he came to them as a criminal. So it's more than the brick and mortar, yes. um, the more than the confessional. Yes. A gathering of broken more, people. More than the pictures. Yeah, exactly. It's a gathering of criminals and he sees himself as one of them. And it's even, he doesn't say this explicitly, or maybe he does in different words that he's worse than them. And that hmm. is that, and that's very different from the way he saw himself before yeah. the persecution. Hmm. The dark grace of persecution. Yeah, hmm. right. There's even that flashback earlier in the book where he was remembering his days. Um, I want to say it was like kind of like shortly after his theological training when he was kind of imagining um, what sort of priest he would be. Uh, it would be in a city and he was just imagining all of the kind of like authority and I don't know, um, positive regard that he would receive from the people. And all of that has come crumbling down. And in a way it's like the moment that he, we at least get a glimmer that actually he's, um, in this prison, he is because of the words that he's speaking, not because of his position, but like what he stands for. Um, he's being recognized. Mm-hmm. Right. Hmm. That, you know, but he's, that's good. And the thing is, he's not being recognized at the same time, right? Right. I'm yeah. just going to say, we need to talk about the lieutenant stuff at the end before we go here. And that that's a good transition to that because he's sitting in front of the picture of himself and he looks at the picture of himself and he looks at the lieutenant and he realizes, I don't look the same. In some way, he has been transformed to the point where, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that if the lieutenant had looked up and they put them side by side, he would have recognized him. But to the point where the lieutenant who had met, who had actually interacted with him before and who had probably stared at that picture thousands of times, for mm-hmm. how many hours, total hours, and yet he doesn't recognize the priest. In some way, he, he has been transformed to the degree that the lieutenant, whose whole mission in life is to capture this dude. Yeah, right. He doesn't recognize him. Right. What will be interesting to look for when we get there is what does the recognition scene 
when it actually happens, because surely, I mean, not, I hope I'm not giving anything away to say, surely we know <laughs> the, the priest, the Lieutenant, and the priest are going to have another face up. Yeah. Also um, chiasm, right? So yes, exactly. Oh, right. Right. Cause it happens earlier in the book and now it's going to be reflected later in the book. So it'll be interesting to pay attention to the language that Graham uses to describe the recognition scene. I don't remember it. Maybe how do you do? I don't remember it. Um, I mean, yeah, but <laughs> she rec- she I mean, yeah, but it's me. It is. It's, it's my relationship with the book that we're talking about. Yeah, he- this recognition scene is really wonderful, actually. This, or this this little scene when he doesn't recognize him. That line at the end. Yeah, I was. It's what I mean. Yeah. It's what we need to talk about because we had a whole conversation. There. there was the conversation online, even of how we should judge the lieutenant. And right. here, the whiskey priest says to him, you're a good man. Yeah. Which, I mean. Well, and that, that, but here's why he says it. Read that whole, from you are getting too old for work. That's that whole conversation between them. When the lieutenant says, hold on, you have no money for your fine. And watched another smut edge out between the leaves scurrying for refuge. In this heat, there's no end to life. Significant. No. How will you live? Some work, perhaps. You're getting too old for work. He put his hand suddenly in his pocket and pulled out a five peso piece. There, he said, get out of here and don't let me see your face again. Mind that. The priest held the coin in his fist, the price of a mass. And he said with astonishment, you're a good man. Mm. Why do you think it says that he said it with astonishment? The, pre- the lieutenant is admittedly his enemy. He wants to kill him. He wants to hunt him down. And he hates the church. He hates God. He hates faith. He wants the world rid of it, which that's an evil thing. That is inherently and ontologically evil. Mm-hmm. But the priest says, like, even though that is evil, that ideology is evil, I am looking into the face of a human being. Mm. Which goes back to what we talked about before with the Mestizo. Exactly, David, the image of God and the failure of imagination. This is a huge moment of redemption for the priest. Because again, it's hate is a failure of imagination. If you cannot imagine the image of God in people who hold evil ideologies, if you identify the person with the ideology instead of seeing the image of God in everybody, that's a failure of imagination. So you know he's saying, I see of? more. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. What does yeah, it remind I, you of? Um, when the grandmother sees the misfit in yes. uh, the Flannery Connor. Why is the yeah. name in my mind? A good man is hard to find. A good man is hard to find. You're my and own baby. My, you're, you're my, my own, own son. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Another I, Catholic, another getting into the Catholic imagination, right? The mm-hmm. image of God is everything. I wonder if, yeah, I mean, we could go into a whole bunch of stuff on what Graham Greene might be saying about uh, the idea of sin nature. <laughs> mm. um, but that mm. might take, that might take, uh, Sean. That'd be a good one to talk listening. with, talk about next time. Sean, if you're listening, mm. then you need to write your <laughs> second thesis. So our, our, our friend, Sean Johnson, he is an editor on our magazine. And so he wrote his MA thesis on this book. So I know oh, really? that he's out there sh- shrieking, in despair every time we do an episode on it. So Sean, we need you to write a part two 
on your thesis, unless your thesis was about Graham Greene's theory of the sin nature, then we need you to write that as your part two and deliver it by next week's episode, please. Right. No um, problem. So I'm sure he can do that. Um, I like that you pointed out that the, in this heat, there was no end to life because mm. that's either, that's either a line of despair or a line of hope. You can read it right either way. Right. Which I think that to the, to your point or the, and to the conversations we keep having, there is, there's so much subtext to Graham Green and it, and it taps into deeply held beliefs in every reader. <laughs> so again, I don't want to say, I don't use this word flippantly, but there's an ambiguity to that. Yeah. Right. And so do we see that image of heat and life? You know, it's the beetles and the mosquitoes and the, the, the dying creatures in the river that make, make it stink. And then the, the crowded, like that, there is not, there's not a lot of positive imagery around the, the teeming of life in this novel. And yet you're a good man, he said with astonishment. It'd be really interesting to think about how we, um, um, how one might perform, deliver that line, mm-hmm. how one might, right. the reading that one gives of that line, if this was in stage or in film, because right. how you, I mean, how you say that determines a lot about how, what you think of this book, right? Yeah. As an actor mm. or as a director. The uh, whole, I think, could there be a more important line to be delivered? I mean, we have to think about that the rest of the book, but if you were performing this, is there a single line that would be more um, important and more, um, right. Uh, would say more about how you're interpreting the book than the way you deliver that one line. Yeah, I mean, you, right. could, you could create entire scenes, but in terms of one line, is this the most important line in the book delivered by a performer who would, could theoretically be performing this scene? Huh. So, you know, if you were a match, if you put great. yourself in the shoes of that, I, I can't think of one so far because you you, you, huh. could, you could deliver it in a way where he's saying, he, he's saying it, you know, obligingly, right? Like to keep this guy from realizing who he is, to get out of there, you're a good man. But then there's this where he's, he really is being transformed. It's a moment of transformation for him and he's seeing in an evil person some sense of good. Um, there's just so many, and then there's other ways as well. There's so many ways you could read that. I'd, that might be worth thinking about is there other lines as we read that are more important in terms of how it would be delivered. Tim, as our resident actor and, and uh, playwright, I should be looking for uh, what need, line possibly could rival it. Yeah, we, I need yeah. I, that's, that's your homework, Tim. Okay, okay, that's what <laughs> I'll read for. But it has to be spoken. It can't be part of the narrative, right? I mean, I guess it could be. Uh, yeah, I mean, unless you put it in the voice of a character, right? Yeah. As, as if you were adapting this to the stage or screen, then it would there could be something else that you're adapting to put into the voice of of, of an actor or of a character, right? That's I, I just think that's really interesting. What are the lines that get expressed mm-hmm. by by a, a character and what's the interpretation of that. It's a lot easier to do with like Shakespeare. Like what's the one line that defines how you think about the play. Um, but it's already dialogue, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's all dialogue. Right. Hmm. All right. Well, we got to wrap this up. So we got to go back to our, whatever other nonsense we're doing. <laughs> Taquitos and Fopacinos. and Fopacinos. Pudding and nerds. Oh man, nerds and pudding would be good. Ooh. I mean, maybe not like chocolate pudding, but it might be a little what sugar. Pudding would you put nerds in? I don't know, vanilla. Like vanilla. Yeah. That might be okay. Gives it a little texture. 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe a little weird, but I'm not going <laughs> to not try that. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Care um, package. Right. <laughs> um, just so everyone knows, I wanted to um, let everyone know that we might, we're going to try to keep the schedule as much as possible, but um, there's an event in my life happening soon that might throw off our schedule slightly. So, and it's one of those events that one cannot, one can plan for, but cannot entirely plan for. Um, as you know, uh, my wife is due to have a baby. The due date is November 13th. So she's full term. So that technically means that any day now things could could happen. So if that happens and for some reason I can't record, we may have to, there may be a day we have to push a recording back or something like that. So if that happens, bear with us. I hope that you, I, I assume that everyone out there understand, gets what's happening. And we will, um, no, we will let everyone know that that's what's happening, but you know, be prepared for massive disappointment. Um, <laughs> For two days. Um, Life is pain, highness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Matt Bianco would hate that as well. Hate that reference as well. Um, Thanks to Belmont Abbey for sponsoring this month um, and for uh, making this episode possible. Tim, any final thoughts? No, I'm good. Heidi, any final thoughts? I do have a final thought. I have a list of final thoughts. You do. Okay. (laughs) No, I'm just going to do one. Um, so here's my final thought on page 126 that, um, somebody, one of the prisoners, the one who says that, um, men who believe in God are cowards. Mm -hmm. Um, the priest has been asked if he's afraid and he says, yes, I'm afraid. And the man says a bit of pain. What do you expect? It has to come all the same. The priest said, I am afraid. And the man says, toothache is worse. Now, we had a lot of conversation on the Facebook page this week about tooth, about teeth and toothaches and all that. And I think that this is really crucial, this little moment. Uh, the priest says, we can't all be brave I'm glad you're men. mentioning this. Yes. So I, I wanted to point this out on this podcast because... This gives a really big clue into what teeth and toothaches and tooth decay represent in this story, which David, do you want to pick up on that? No, go for it. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'll I'll add on to what you say. I think there's a lot here about the human condition. Tim, did you hear this? Did you see this on Facebook? I mean, no, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. There's the question, why all the references to teeth? Right. So here in this chapter, we get the quick pain of martyrdom contrasted with the long agony, slow, but not fatal agony of toothache. Mm. So, and I, I think that there's a lot there about the human condition and what it means to bear up under suffering that doesn't kill you. And that sometimes that's the harder calling. It is easier to die quickly than to bear the long drawn out suffering of human life and like having to wait for groceries for two days while David's wife has this beautiful baby girl. Like that is the thing that is worse than death. So like there's, <laughs> this is a really important little moment in this scene. Hmm. I didn't want to say it on Facebook because we hadn't talked about it yet on the podcast. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I love, people were saying, well, could it mean this, this, and this? And my answer is, mm-hmm. well, yeah. Yes, I mean, that's what Green Green does. All it's about, things. it's about human condition. It's about the fact that um, out of, out of our mouth comes the power to heal yeah. and the power to destroy. It's about the fact that we put, we put um, things into our mouth to allow us to survive. 
And it's also about that the absence of that causes us not to survive. Also kissing, right? So, um, yes. Uh, which was a joke, but also I'm serious. Um, and I kind of harped on that on Facebook, um, semi unsubtly, but, um, it's all of these things. And that's what, that's the beauty of Graham Greene, right? Like Graham Greene's a poet. I mean, he's a novelist, but he's a poet. He's create, all these things create this tone and this mood. And there's this essence to the book that these, these images that have so many different meanings, meanings provide. And, and it's it, the, the sense of decay, um, is that's there the idea of a toothache um is is part of that sort of the imagery of despair right the same imagery that the swamps and the jungle and all the other things feed into but the idea of a toothache there's also a dentist in this book right so there's at least the illusion the implication that can be healed so there's the idea of hope in there and then out of out of our mouths come is the sense of healing this and that sense of hope and i think that that's worth looking out for as well and there's the constant allusion to the way that words are expressed in this book so he says finally people are hearing him like they hadn't heard him since he was in the church right or that they didn't even hear him when he was in the church and so people are hearing words expressed in different ways at different times i think all that feeds into this sort of this this uh, this well, I don't know if it's tied if the if we should tie it back to the teeth or if it's all just tied back to the idea of the mouth. Um, right. And also, where right. the mouth is where the sacraments, the sacrament or the Eucharist is is uh, is delivered as well. So, if I can put right. it so, you know, poorly. <laughs> um, oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, yeah, that's where I think it's worth looking out for, and I'm really glad that people brought that up. It was an it was a really good observation. Hmm. Tim, you should get on the Facebook page more. People are smart out there. I I felt like I've been checking in, but I've apparently been inconsistent. Apologies, I'll do better. <laughs> I wasn't really. I was. It wasn't really meant to be a critique. You have a life. <laughs> also, you probably are smart to to not go on, to not go on Facebook just in general. <laughs> but thanks to everyone for putting their questions on there. Conversation's been great. Um, and don't forget that in a couple of weeks we are going to do our Q and A episodes. If you want to start putting questions on there and hashtag them with close reads Q and A. Um, then we will uh, we will make sure that we are going through those. We will post a thread as well, um, and uh, we'll be answering as many questions as we can. But but the great thing is the people out there who are listening are um, are answering tons of questions, and there's so much great conversation aside from anything that any of the nonsense that we just throw out there on this hour and a half show. So thanks for everyone who's been participating in the in the show. All right, with that, Heidi, Tim, thanks so much. Thanks, David. Bye, guys. For Tim and for Heidi and for all of us here at Cersei and on the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading, and we will talk to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.